Good morning, everyone. This is Rona Palmer from Fluke Excelix, and thanks for joining us today for this month's Best Practices webinar. And in our Best Practice webinar series, we take a step back from our technology and we focus instead on maintenance strategies and solutions and things that help you improve your operations. We invite people with a variety of backgrounds to share their knowledge and expertise. And I'm very pleased to have with us today Calvin Williams, who is a new speaker to our program, though certainly not new to the industry. And he's the CEO and founder of a relatively new company called Improver Technologies. And he's going to be presenting today's topic, generating the skill and the will to improve performance. Good morning, Calvin, and uh, thanks for being with us today. Good morning, Rona. So happy to be with you. And Calvin, while we're giving our listeners a moment to get settled in, maybe you can tell us a little bit. You've been in this industry a while, and what is it that you saw? What need or gap or what sort of prompted you to want to uh, assemble this particular topic to share today with our listeners? Well, uh, that's a that's a great question. And, you know, there's from, from my experience, you know, moving around with some some really good companies, some big companies, Fortune 200. And even as a management consultant with some smaller companies, you see a common set of challenges. And a lot of them revolve around, you know, everybody wants to improve, everybody wants to do better, be more profitable, you know, operate at a lower operating cost. Uh, but for some reason, it's it's usually a challenge getting the skill level of the workforce where it needs to be to really drive the, the speed of improvement that people want. It's also a challenge getting the, you know, closing the motivation gap and getting people to want to improve and want to take initiative and you know, when good ideas come down the pipeline, getting people to want to take action on those opportunities. So, uh, so yeah, this this webinar, this opportunity to speak on something I'm so passionate about is is very timely, and uh, very relevant to to some of the things I've seen throughout my career. Excellent. Well, we look we look forward to it. Uh, just before I turn it over to Calvin to start presenting a few quick housekeeping items, we're recording today's session, um, and we'll share a link to the recording with all of our listeners today. So we have your phones muted, but Calvin has agreed to answer any questions that you might have. Um, and should time run out, we'll make sure we get all of your questions answered even after the webinar. But please feel free to type a question at any time during the presentation, and we'll read them to Calvin uh, when he is done with his slide presentation. Also, uh, if you'd like to get a copy of the slides from today's presentation, there'll be a brief survey at the conclusion of the webinar, and there'll be a place where you can request a copy of the slides. We'll also post the recording on our Excelix community website. So I think that's it for housekeeping. So Calvin, uh, I'll turn it over to you to get started. All right, Rona, thank you so much. So uh, Rona sort of alluded to a little bit about me already and what led me up to the work I'm doing now with Improver. I won't spend a lot of time on this just to give you guys a little bit of background. Uh, I've been working in manufacturing operations either as a you know continuous improvement leader, uh, operations or production leader, uh, or management consultant for the last 20 years, uh, starting out at Tyson Foods as a IE, uh, moving into Nestle to do some, kind of starting my real CI journey, 
uh, leading some CI projects there. Uh, went to Colgate. Paul Moloff wanted some experience actually managing production teams. Uh, got a uh, step forward in Mars to, to lead an entire operation and then uh, went into management consultant. And most recently before Improver, working at Clorox as the senior manager of global continuous improvement, leading their TPM initiative for implementation across about 35 factories globally. Uh, and, and I'm sure that you guys are, are very familiar with TPM and, and some of the some of the great benefits that come along with that. Um, in, in doing that work and seeing all those things, uh, and there is a lot there. <laughs> Maybe I got some undiagnosed ADD going on. Maybe I'm getting bored easy, but um, in that in that journey, that's my journey. Uh, like I said, I've seen some things that I would consider some common challenges that a lot of these guys face, big and small. Uh, you know, aerospace, CPG, automotive, around generating the skill and the will to improve performance. And uh, hopefully, we can present some really good ideas in today's video. Um, on the right side, a couple of organizations I'm a member of: Institute of Industrial Engineers, Atlanta chapter. I'm actually the membership chair and vice president of marketing and also Toastmasters. Uh, as far as interests, um, economic development, uh, I grew up in a, in a sort of a depressed area of Chicago. And uh, there's a lot of issues, a lot of challenges there. And I think a lot of them can be traced back to just not a lot of great opportunities for people to, to, to engage in the economy and participate. So uh, I'm a big advocate for economic development um, talent development and coaching, of course, as a as a coach, as a management consultant, coaching is a big part of my life. But I also uh, have a big interest in coaching both youth and adult. I actually coach my son's track team, and we'll probably get more involved in in some community coaching as well. Uh, lastly, as a parent, uh, being a parent has transformed my life in many ways. Ways I'm still learning about. Uh, I have three at home: a ten-year-old boy, eight-year-old girl, and a two-year-old baby girl who is the new boss. So we're all still adjusting to our new boss at home. So, <laughs> but we're having a lot of fun. It's uh, no greater joy for me. All right, so let's dive into the agenda. Uh, there's really four topics we wanna hit today. Um, first, defining the problem, right? And the problem is, is sort of twofold. There's a skills gap, and then there's a motivation gap, what we call the, the will gap. So uh, again, the title is developing the skill and will to improve. Then we'll dive into sizing up the skill gap. How big of a skill gap do we have? I'm sure you guys have heard several conversations around this, you know, in the maintenance world where you're looking for really talented, high skilled people. This is probably a bigger problem than um, than the, the 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 average. And then we'll talk into we'll talk about some some ideas for developing skill and then the developing will to improve performance. Finally, we'll dive into QA, Q&A, and I can leave you, and, and toward the end, I'll leave you some, uh, a little information about my company, what it does, how to get a hold of me for further questions, if you have any. So on that thought, uh, let's dive into the conversation here. So we talk about the skill gap, and you know, this is a bigger problem for the US, especially in the manufacturing sector, okay? But let's talk about the US broadly. So 47% of the U.S. workforce is expected to retire over the next 10 years. That's almost half of the U.S. workforce. This number is expected to increase by as much as 20% over the next decade. So that, that, could, that number could jump to more like 67% of the U.S. work. That's two thirds, right? When, when, I, when I think about those numbers, I think about uh, 
uh, Avengers, Infinity Wars, where at the end Thanos is, snaps his finger and, and half of the population just vanishes into thin air. Right? Uh, imagine if that happened in the U.S. workforce, what that might do to the U.S. economy. Right? It's hard to it's hard to even conceive. This equates to an estimate loss of 85% of the knowledge and capability critical to sustain the U.S. economy. If you're uh, if you're a developing economy or if you're you know in the wing of being the world leading economy, you're waiting for an opportunity like this. If you're China or you know some of the other maybe BRICS countries or uh, other countries looking to to really take the top spot, this is this is the perfect opportunity. And I look at from a generational standpoint, I'm a generation Xer. You know, we have uh, millennials after my generation and then beyond. This will be the problem of our lifetime is really figuring out how to backfill or replenish the massive loss in skills and capability from the economy to to keep things going, keep the train on the on the rails. So um, I cannot overstate the significance of this challenge, this specific challenge. All right, so before we dive into the conversation around generating the skill to improve, I wanna throw a quick poll out there. I wanna see where you guys are, okay? Uh, the question for the poll is, how would you describe your company's approach to accelerating skills development? The options are lagging, throw them in the pool and see if they sink or swim, surviving, provide them with the bare minimum and let them figure the rest out, thriving, routine training or frequent opportunities for professional development or leading where the company is systematically challenging each employee to continuously improve performance and investing actively investing in their development so rona if you will uh launch the poll and let's see what we get back great okay the poll is open and uh we'd like you to let calvin know what is your company's approach to skills development. All right, we'll leave these open for about 30 seconds or so. Let us know, is it lagging, surviving, thriving, or leading? All right, I see we've got about two thirds of the votes in, so we'll leave this open a few more seconds. And again, we, don't, we only share these in aggregate, so there's no wrong answers here. Uh, just help Calvin know where you are in this process. And, and it's okay. It, it's okay to it's okay to be candid because uh, you know we, we don't know who is submitting the responses, what company, or that kind of thing. We just we just want to get a good feel for the climate. All right. So let's go ahead and have a look. So 16% Calvin say that they're lagging. Over half, 55% say they're surviving. 22% say thriving, and 8% characterize their company as leading. All right, back to you. That is, that is interesting. Uh, I would have expected maybe a little more on the thriving side, but uh, it looks like, it looks like uh, surviving is probably the, uh, the mode anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Pretty insightful, right? Seems like there's a lot of opportunity to really actively go out and close the the skills gap. Definitely. I would imagine in a in a maintenance function, operations function, you guys are feeling the pain the most. So, <laughs> you gotta, maybe there's a little bit of bias in the results. So, um, but that's good to know. Very interesting stuff. 
All right, so we ready to advance? All right, let's go ahead. Silas is agreement, right? Um, so in sizing up the skills gap, right? So I went out and did a bunch of research. This is something I've been studying for some time now and pulled the some of the statistics around how big of a skills gap is there, right? How significant of a problem is this? So uh, this is a global problem, first of all, and it's most significant in the U.S. manufacturing sector, you know, largely because of the, you know, changing demographic, baby boomers leaving, and then uh, those folks being backfilled by a younger generation, um, and largely because, um, because at a younger age, we don't tend to channel our children to careers in manufacturing. There aren't many third graders out there who are waking up every day excited about going into work at work in a factory as a you know as a career choice. So um, those are some dy uh, demographic uh, dynamics at play. So a couple of the the, the standout statistics here. The first one here: ten thousand Americans reach age sixty-five. That's retirement age each day, and this has been happening since twenty eleven and it'll continue ha to happen for the next 11 years or so. That's a pretty dramatic, that's a pretty significant amount of people uh, leaving the workforce on a daily basis almost, or at least ready to leave the workforce. Uh, the next piece here, the skills gap is costing US companies about $160 billion per year. That's a significant amount of money. And a lot of that money, you gotta think, you know, uh, think about the US, standing of the U.S. in the world from a military standpoint and things we're able to do because of our large economy, uh, that that strength, economic strength, is, is only getting weaker over time. Last piece here, the skills gap will cost the U.S. economy about $2.5 in G GDP over the next decade. That's an incredible amount of money. Tr when, when you start talking billions and trillions of dollars, it's hard to fathom how much money that really is, right? 2.5 trillion, that's incredible. So there are some other statistics there. We'll share this slide with you. So you have those, uh, feel free to use those as needed. So what companies are doing, and you guys are probably doing to, to some of this to, to an extent, to close the skills gap, there's really two predominant approaches, right? There's on one side, recruit more qualified people, and on the other side, develop from within, right? So when we talk recruiting more qualified people, uh, there's a couple of things that are being done. One of the big things that's being done is to develop apprenticeship programs modeled after some of the successful programs in the world. I know Sweden and Germany and some other, uh, Jap uh, I think Japan and some of the other Eastern countries have some really good programs. Um, this is something that's you know, really interesting about the way the U.S. approaches apprenticeships is, you know, we tend to try to push all kids through the college track, right? And the the reality is is that not every kid is cut out for college. Not every kid is interested, has has access, or you know, um, is is college material. Um, what a lot of the other countries do is they provide apprenticeships programs where you know you can start channeling kids into those programs as early as eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grade in high school. And it just provides them with another track to really have a, a career that really fits their um, their, their natural capacities. Um, the other piece is, is increasing pay. Um, this could work. It has worked for some. It has, it's a double-edged sword because the people you attract with the increased pay might also be attracted to the, the factory across the street, 
when when they offer a little bit higher pay as well. So uh, this could be effective, but again, it's a double-edged sword. Um, and the other big thing that, that that companies are doing is just to recruit recruit from a broader base of talent. You know, military veterans, foreign countries, felons, uh, relaxing the education or experience requirements, really looking for the propensity to do the job, the natural inclinations to do the job, as opposed to actual education and skill sets. And then uh, they look to to do the second thing, which is once they're in the job, develop from within. So um, the other side of the coin is on the right side here, uh, internal development. This is the topic for this talk today. Um, there's really two, you know, there's a couple of different things that companies are doing, but two of the big ones here, um, investing in the systems, processes, services. This means actually committing real resources, time and effort into these things uh, needed to develop the internal talent base at a faster pace. That's the, the thought process of going to war with the army you got and, and not the not the ideal army, right? And then developing your army as you go. Um, tons of benefits for that. Um, the other piece there is to, to redesign internal processes based on your current realities. Um, to some extent, we like to believe we can just create standards and plug any person into the job and they should be able to follow those standards and do the job to perfection. The reality is that those even the original created standard is based on the person that's there doing the job already right to some extent so every job is somewhat molded to fit the individual in the job so when you bring in a new person you know in order for that person to do the job well to some extent you're going to have to to do some degree of engineering the job around the person that's in the job so um being able and having the flexibility capability to change your processes to fit the people uh, is a is a competitive advantage not only fit the people but also to fit the market uh, more closely as well is is certainly another competitive advantage all right so when we talk about the skill to improve right improvement requires not only understanding the machines understanding the process at a deeper more intimate level it also requires being able to make the right changes to produce a better outcome from the process. So there are some continuous improvement methods, uh, specifically PDCA, that are used to accelerate the development of internal talent, right? Um, I assume you guys have had some degree of exposure to PDCA, so I won't spend a ton of time on this. Planning, setting objectives, uh, targets, assigning resources, forming a hypothesis, doing getting the work done checking making sure that what you did actually worked if the intent is to improve oee by five points and you did three things did it actually improve oee or not that's checking uh and then acting that's uh deciding whether or not if you achieved your goal maybe you want to share the best practices across the organization or if you didn't achieve your goal maybe you want to continue the experimentation until uh go back through the pdca process until you get the result you're looking for uh, PDCA, in a nutshell, is essentially the scientific method. It is uh, it, it is the, the very same process we learned in fourth grade chemistry class, right? So uh, what is the scientific method? You form a hypothesis. This is what I think will happen. That's sort of planning. You do the experiment. You check the results. And then you decide, uh, you act or decide what further steps to take. Either I need to repeat the experiment to get a certificate significantly uh, statistically significant sample size or you know share my learnings across the scientific field or or uh, whatever the, the appropriate follow-up action is um, to develop mastery of this skill 
right? PDCA is a skill. Um, it needs to be practiced routinely. And this is the main premise of Toyota Kata. I don't know if you guys have heard of Kata, but it's a really great way to increase the skill set of people in your organization, right? Um, a lot of companies have struggled trying to do lean and CIOT, continuous improvement, and even TPM and some of the other ones, RCM. And uh, what what was done probably nine years ago now, Mike Rother, the guy who uh, wrote the book on learning to see, went back into Toyota and say, hey, something's wrong. You know, what's the problem here? How do, why are all these companies struggling? And what they discovered was that the the capability of a Toyota employee to solve problems is probably five times better than the average company in the U.S. that's struggling to try to implement lean. That's a huge discovery. That's a huge understanding. And, and, and that capability to solve problems and, you know, intimately understand your process, you know, really developing a skill set uh, is what PDCA and, and the Toyota Kata process is, is really driving toward. Bruce Lee said, I fear not the man that has practiced 10,000 kicks once, but I fear the man who has practiced one kick 10,000 times. Pretty profound, right? You, you do not want to be on the receiving end of that kick, okay? And, and if you do find yourself uh, on that end, then you, you probably need some new friends, but uh, that's, that's a different presentation. <laughs> All right, so we can't talk about talent and skill development without talking about feedback, okay? Uh, love or hate feedback, it is it is essential to really improving, you know, improving processes, improving people capability, improving talent, developing skills, and so forth. So here's a Rubik's cube. It's what I call the the feedback Rubik's cube. Okay, and there's three dimensions. There's the source of feedback, the speed of feedback, and the method of feedback. So just to, to level set on the quality of the feedback channel, let's just say that blue is the highest quality, green is the kind of in the middle, and then yellow is the lowest quality of feedback, right? So when it comes to source of feedback, there's three sources essentially you're gonna get feedback from. You're either gonna get it directly from the customer, and that's the highest quality, directly from the end user, um, and that could be internal or external customer. You're going to get it directly from the system itself. This could be directly from the machine. You can have and on lights that go on. You can have software kicking out data telling you something's wrong or this is going good. Or you can get feedback from a coach. This could be a supervisor, a manager, a peer, a you know, a professional coach or consultant or something like that. Um, so yeah, the highest quality there is going to be direct from the customer. Now, when it comes to speed, there's fast, medium, and slow. Of course, fast is ideal. You want real-time feedback. You want to make an immediate connection between action and response. Um, and then on the other end, it's the slow speed. Wait a year to get feedback on something you did a year ago. So let's call it less than ideal. Uh, and finally, the method, right? And there's three categories there. Uh, ideally, you want direct observation. You want the learner to directly observe with no middle, you know, middle, uh, middleman or uh, connector directly to the source. Uh, the second is data analysis, where you're looking at data and deriving insights and then using that to make decisions or to make changes. And the last thing um, is is to interview people to get feedback, right, where you're pulling information from others. That's not to say, you know, any of these is bad or wrong. It's just to say some channels or some sources of feedback, some dimensions of feedbacks are better 
than others and going to give you a more clear signal in real time. Okay. Um, so on the right side here, we got a couple examples. On the low end of the spectrum, you got, you know, from a coach, from the source, you got slow and speed, you got uh, interview method, kind of the low quality on all three is the annual performance review, right? This is the situation where you sit down with your supervisor or manager and they, the first thing they say to you is, you know what, you did something 11 and a half months ago that I didn't like, <laughs> right? So that's probably the lowest quality of feedback you can get because, you know, so much has happened since then. There's so much noise in that that statement that you really don't know how to respond to that. And you probably, you know, it's probably a one-time behavior that you may or may not have ever even committed. So um, that's the that's the challenge when you have a low quality of uh, feedback signal. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you got a live rock concert, for example. You got a performer is up on stage, you know, singing a song or, you know, playing the guitar and, they, you know, they stop for a second and rip their shirt off and all the, the ladies in the audience start screaming. That is probably the ideal type quality of feedback that you can get, right? So that's direct from the customer, real time and directly observable by the learner, okay? And, and what happens with that is the performer on stage starts to learn really quickly what is gonna produce the reaction that they're looking for. And this is why you know some of those performers become so incredible and brilliant at their work at a fast pace, right? There's a couple others there. You can dive into those and you can you can sort of create your own based on what's in, in your specific environment. But um, the message here is that as a leader, as a supervisor, as a manager, you have um, the power or you have almost a responsibility to provide your people with clear feedback signals. Right. Um, it doesn't have to be you going out and coaching them on something they're doing. Feedback can come from multiple sources, like we said. And uh, the, the, the more clear, the more real time you can provide that feedback signal to the learner, the more repetitions they can get through the learning cycle, through the PDCA cycle, and they can develop at a much faster pace, right? So if, you only, if they only get an annual performance review once a year, that's, uh, it'll, it'll take them uh, 10,000 years to get, get their 10,000 kicks in, um, um, referencing the, the Bruce Lee quote there. So yeah, you, you you want this to be multiple times a day if possible, and this this allows them to get through that PDCA cycle much quickly, much more quickly. Uh, there's companies out there who are leveraging technology now. Um, there's a company, Hire, a Chinese company, appliance manufacturer, who um, has implemented a process called Rendon Hei. You guys should Google this if you haven't heard of it, where they have essentially tied the value stream workforce, the technicians. Um, communications directly to the customer and directly to the immediate market that the plant serves. So they're pulling in pretty much real-time immediate feedback from the from the customer and using that to engineer and design and uh, figure out how to deliver products that more directly satisfy the customer. They've had incredible results with this. In fact, you know, typically feedback comes in at the middle or top of the organization and gets cascaded down telephone effect thing and by the time it gets to the value stream it doesn't have nearly as much clarity or quality as as it started with um think about and and, and this has happened with them is they've been able to eliminate 10,000 middle managers from their business and just create almost treat each plant like a like a startup operation like a uh, 
like a small business serving its immediate market. So um, there's incredible potential here and in, in technology is, is creating the opportunity to, to have this kind of system. All right, so that's that's it for that's all I have for building the skill to improve. So before we jump into developing or generating the will to improve performance, let's dive into another survey here. Okay, um, I would like to know how would you describe your company's approach to generating the will to improve performance? Right? How do you get people to want to do better, grow faster, improve performance? Uh, four choices here, just like before. Lagging, there are no clear lines of accountability, ownership, support, or rewards. Next step step up is surviving. There's a command and control type of environment, strictly top-down, fear-driven work environment. Uh, next step up is thriving. There's a system in place to engage workers in driving better business results, but not fully utilized. And then sort of a top, top upper echelon is is leading where workers, technicians have full ownership of results, rewards, and consequences. And is a key point, leaders serve more as coaches than as directors. So what are your thoughts? Let's dive into the poll. All right, the poll is open. So let's go ahead and uh, see what our listeners have to say and indicate if your company's approach is lagging, surviving, thriving or leading. All right, we've got about two thirds of the votes in. We'll leave this open just a little bit more. All right, let's go ahead and see what our listeners have to say. Calvin, it seems that 28% are saying lagging, no clear accountability. Another 26% pretty comparable, say surviving, fear-driven, top-down approach. But the largest, 40%, say thriving. There's a system in place, but it's not fully utilized. And then 6% indicate that their company has a leading approach to generating wealth. All right, I'll turn this back to you. Thank you, Rona. This is interesting, right? Interesting to see that uh, lagging is the second highest, and then you got um, surviving in the middle there, and then and then there's a lot on the thriving side, which is which is good to hear, actually. Um, I know a lot of companies are are experimenting with you know techniques like gamification, which we'll talk a little bit more here, and some other things. So, um, and and also this is a space where I think technology is showing us that a lot more can be done. So this is good, this is good insight. Thank you guys for participating. So um, let's, let's dive into the, the conversation about generating the will to improve. The first thing I wanna talk about is, is play versus work. You know, we live in, a, in our society, and I guess this is true for many parts of the world, is, is we tend to look at play as, as the opposite of work, right? It's the uh, diametrically opposed to work. Um, all work and no play makes Johnny a dull boy. You know, I work hard so I can play hard. You can think of some other kind of common phrases there. Uh, we look at play as something to be enjoyed, right? An activity that produces joy and incitement, right? Something we look forward to. Uh, we pay to play, right? But on the other hand of that, other end of that is, is work, right? This is something to be endured. It's an activity that produces, 
you know, just needed to, to produce a business result. It's more of a means to an end. It's not something we necessarily uh, look forward to unless you just happen to, to love your job, which which is a fantastic thing. So, um, yeah, people have to pay us to work in general. Obviously, there's there's passion work and there's other types of work that uh, maybe doesn't qualify. But, yeah, we look at work and play as opposites. But I think what some leading organizations are teaching us uh, and, and what we've learned over time is that work does not necessarily need to be the opposite of play, right? You can you can do things and you can systemize systematize things so that uh, work feels more like play, right? And if you think about the adult learning industry, for example, where it used to be, you know, sit in a room and uh, just, you know, go through a textbook-like presentation of facts and data. Uh, is transforming into people sitting down at a table, maybe doing some exercises, uh, maybe doing some type of workshop. It's really highly engaged, high hands-on. You know, people have realized that play makes learning the learning process a lot easier, right? There are technology companies out there. You know, let's let's pick on Google. Um, you know, Google has playrooms set up, arcades and you know, ping pong tables and stuff like that, where you know people can just take breaks and go out and play for a while before they get back to work, right? And they say that's does a lot for stimulating creativity and things like that. Um, so yeah, if you think about that, you know, I'm, actually, I'm on that note. I'm I'm one to, to to think if if you can figure out how to use play to get the work done, I think you got a uh, even more powerful system there. But you know, who's to who's to challenge the effectiveness of Google's model, right? I mean, they're a wildly successful company, and uh, many other companies have systems like that in place. So uh, the question here is, how do you make work feel a little more like play. So on the side of play, right, there are there are entire industries out there whose business models are to provide um, entertainment, right? You think about uh, the video game industry, you know, casinos, movies, music, um, the list goes on and on. These are things that people look forward to doing, right? Sports, uh, these are things that people do on their free time, right? They, they, they draw to them, they, it pulls them in, right? Um, the question is, what can we as manufacturing people, as industrial people learn from those industries that we could potentially create the same type of pool that they have of people's time and attention? Um, and there's a, there's a great model out there for gamification, right? Look at the video gaming industry. This is called the Octalysis Gamification Model. And you can Google it and learn more about it. There's a ton of ton of uh, content and research out there on it. But here are the core eight core drivers of gamification. And when I go through these, I want you to think about rephrase that as these are the eight core drivers of human motivation. All human motivation can be mapped against these eight core drivers. OK, so let's start with meaning or greater purpose. A lot of people are highly motivated, uh, myself included. Um, guilty of this one, by the the prospect of participating some in something that's greater than, greater than themselves, right? Uh, the company I think about when I think about this one is Tesla, for example. I mean, they this is a company in the manufacturing industry where you know everybody else is struggling to get you know sharp top talent to to come in and participate. This is a company that has people lined up around the corner and you know and, and down the block, right? People wanting to work for this company. And a big part of that is, you know, Elon Musk. He's a guy who's out to save the world. You know, whether his whether he's right or wrong about what he's doing, 
you know, a lot of people see that and they attach themselves to it and they they want to they want to participate. It, it pulls people in. It's intensely motivating for some. Uh, the next one is empowerment, increasing power and capability. This is where you include learning new skills. Uh, if you think about, you know, getting certified in uh, Six Sigma or Lean or something like that, uh, this is empowerment. There's a lot of people who really see uh, value and 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 get are drawn into that type of um, core driver. The next one is social influence, increased social status or rank. Can't talk about social influence without talking about the power of Facebook and what it's done to all of us, right? 2.7 billion people on Facebook. Um, that's half the world's population or getting close to half of the world's population, right? And, and that number would be a lot higher if everybody had access to, to internet and the devices to get on the internet. All my all my 2.7 billion friends are on Facebook, so I need to be on Facebook too, right? That's social influence. Keeping up with the Joneses. Uh, the next one is unpredictability, curious curiosity about what will happen next. Uh, I just finished the whole series of Game of Thrones, right? And you know we watched it after the the show had already ended, so we could watch it all in one shot. And we got through the whole thing in about two days, which is probably not healthy. Uh, that's too much TV in, in such a short time frame, but we just couldn't we couldn't stop watching, right? We knew we shouldn't watch that next episode, but we couldn't resist. Unpredictability, right? Intensely motivating. Avoidance, fear of loss, sustaining position or well-being, right? Can't lose what you work so hard for. First of all, it's embarrassing. <laughs> Second of all, uh, you work so hard for it, so why would you want to fall backward? Fear of loss. Scarcity, lack of accessibility. I know people who will go buy things even though they don't need them just because they're on sale, right? I better get one before they run out. Scarcity, intensely motivating. Ownership, the privileges of use and enjoyment. Think about home ownership and think about the American dream. It's to own your own home, right? Own a business even, right? These are, these are intensely motivating things and a big driver for the housing market, for example, in the US and a lot of other economies around the world are driven, leveraged on the uh, the privilege of ownership. Uh, and the last one here is accomplishment. That's achievement through earning. Nothing feels better to get something that you've earned than to get something you work for, you earn, you toil, overcame challenges, and you achieved it, right? Accomplishment is immensely motivating for many, right? So as you think about these, think about the eight core drivers of all human motivation, right? And that, in manufacturing, in the industry, Ask yourself if your company is doing enough in these spaces to attract the, the quality and the type of talent that that's needed to, to, to take the company where it's trying to go. All right, so let's dissect this model a little bit real quick here. Um, if you look at the three on the left, accomplishment, ownership, scarcity, these are intrinsic tendencies driven by an internal desire to achieve. You got a lot of people in that space. You got uh, probably the rest of the world is in the other space, driven by extrinsic tendencies, an external force or motivator. Okay. Next slide here talks about the kind of the top and the bottom, right? On the top, you got desire for improvement, accomplishment, meaning, greater purpose, empowerment. These are all positive reinforcement. Um, on the bottom there, you got uh, drivers of fear or consequences. These are negative reinforcement. Scarcity, avoidance or fear of loss, and unpredictability. So this is a even even the way the the drivers are laid out here kind of show you the map. 
All right, so that sort of dovetails into this piece, right? On a, um, there's a lot here, I know. Um, on the left side is a radar chart. And what it's suggesting is that you can map your organization's kind of strengths and weaknesses against the, the eight core drivers of, of gamification, right? And, and in some spaces, you'll be stronger. In some, you're, you're gonna not, not going to be as strong. You can map Facebook, LinkedIn. You can map uh, various companies against these same drivers. And you can see uh, where they're strong and weak. Um, the idea, though, is that based on your map and the way your radar chart's going to look, is is predictive as to what type of talent you can attract to your organization, right? And 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 then you can sort of pull these levers to attract the type of people you need based on where your organization is trying to go, right? So if you're a uh, high growth company and you're really looking for some people who are gonna um, who are going to take risks and you know look for high rewards, maybe it's a sales organization, maybe it's a early stage company startup maybe just you know growing really quickly uh you're going to look for people who are more motivated by the things on the top half of this this um this radar chart accomplishment meaning and empowerment right um i have to say this and uh you can you can choose to agree or not um but i think from what i from what i've seen operations companies or manufacturing companies industrial companies tend to attract people more on the bottom side of the radar chart around the scarcity, avoidance, and unpredictability. And I rationalize that by thinking of it as, you know, if you work at a manufacturing company, you're producing products at scale. You cannot afford to have people taking actions that are so risky that they result in a hundred million billion dollar recall, right? So you're gonna you're gonna find people who tend to be a little bit more risk averse in operations. Um, you know, rather, rather, rather it's a good, good, good thing or not. I think that's the, the tendency and what tends to happen. Um, so the point, though, here is to say that regardless of where you are, you have some levers that you can pull to get where you want to go. Right. Um, and there are some strategies here on the right side. By no means take these things and copy and paste. Obviously, you have to apply your better judgment to decide what's going to work for you and not. Um, but let me just go through some examples to show, you know, some levers you can pull to to drive uh, stronger gamification and perhaps motivate your people at a higher level. Right. So we talk meaning, you know, helping people to see how their work is changing the world for the better, even better if it comes directly from the customer's mouth. Uh, accomplishment, establishing a status for achieving important milestones, improvement milestones. Right. Uh, some of us are Six Sigma qualified or Lean Six Sigma, where you have yellow belt, then green, and then black, and then master black belt. Uh, for some people, those are um, immensely motivating milestones. Empowerment, creating a skills progression that allows continued development. I've seen companies do this to really great success. Uh, they create a skills block program where you complete a, you know, a set of activities, you build a set of skills, and then uh, your pay actually increases as you climb up the, uh, the, the skills progression. Uh, ownership, grant authority over decisions related to uh, the person's process, right? Just being having some degree of control over what's happening, what's not, not happening in your area uh, for some is immensely motivating. Uh, social influence, creating a network where successes and learnings can be shared. People love to, some people love to really share their experiences what, they're, what they've achieved, what they're struggling with, and then just kind of 
open up the lines of communication so so information can flow back and forth more easily. Uh, scarcity, uh, placing deadlines on improvement targets. Time can be a scarce resource also. And when you place a deadline, you, you bring some degree of scarcity to getting some work done. So um, that's assuming that everybody has improvement targets to begin with. Um, and then from there, you can use time as a scarce resource. Unpredictability, raffling off prizes. You know, for everyone who meets their improvement objective over this quarter, you know, they become eligible to win a raffle for a plane ticket to Vegas or something. Most cities can get to Vegas fairly inexpensively. So, um, but yeah, you could you could be creative on what type of prizes you might offer. Uh, people just like to win things, even if they don't need them. Uh, something they would never buy, but will be thrilled to win it. Last thing, avoidance and fear of loss, publishing performance results, and then ranking them from uh, best to worst. Uh, most people would rather not show up on the bottom of that list. So that could be immensely motivating as well. Uh, by no means, like I said, take by no means take these strategies and implement them immediately. You'd have to look at your organization and see where it is, where it's trying to go and pick and decide what you know what you could do to to move the needle in the right direction. All right, so this is uh, the last slide here, just to really call out that technology now, um, both software and hardware technology is making the process of developing the skill and will to improve more easy, easier now than ever, right? We're all familiar with the concept of, you know, people developing computers and people developing software, people developing technology. Uh, we're familiar, we're getting familiar with the concept of technology developing technology. What we're sort of diving into now is the concept of technology developing people, right? Uh, there is a huge skills gap and motivation gap out there. And we're, we're, we're going to be in a situation, we're already in a situation where we got to leverage every, every tool at our disposal to close that gap, right? So uh, there's three sort of big ones, IoT, artificial intelligence, uh, augmented virtual reality. And then there's a bunch of other ones out there too, um, not to, not to uh, diminish the importance of those, um, but three of the ones that, that are probably making a, a significant amount of progress. IoT, I mean, this is where you're, this is where, this is what it enables you to connect the value stream directly to the customer right, without all the noise, right? Um, so that people can learn the, the consequences of their actions in, in near real time. Uh, we think about artificial intelligence, right? In most manufacturing environments, many manufacturing environments, the ratio of supervisor to employees is something like one to 20, right? Um, in most service companies, the ratio is something like one to six on average. So you can imagine that, you know, one to six, one supervisor to six employees, those six people can develop at a much faster rate because they're sharing their supervisor with less people. In a manufacturing environment, though, you know, a ratio of one to 20, you know, you're, you're going to get development at a much slower pace. So you almost have to rely on technology to help you develop your, your talent, right? And some people just don't get the near the amount of attention they need to develop to, to develop their skills and capabilities. So artificial intelligence is one thing that makes talent development scalable, right? Whereas a supervisor can only be with one person at a time, artificial intelligence can be with every person at a time. And providing them with, you know, timely intelligence, timely information, helping them synthesize what's going on, uh, providing them feedback on, you know, what they're doing well, what they're not doing well. 
and and even you know feeding them training material and information to to help them you know climb up their curve at a faster pace. So yeah, that's a that's a big opportunity there, and uh, I don't know how we get to the next plateau without leveraging that tool. Um, AR and VR, this is see it before you do it or see what's inside before you open it. You think about troubleshooting, think about getting to the right answer in less time. AR and VR could uh, be an immensely useful tool for, for us to accomplish those things. So, all right, that's my last slide here to talk through. I think we're okay on time. I wanted to try to go sort of quickly so we can have some time for questions and answers. So, uh, Rona, are we going to open up for Q&A? Do we have any questions at this point? Yes, we do. Uh, and thanks so much, Calvin. And uh, please feel free to type your questions in and <clears throat> we'll go ahead and read them. One listener um, typed in that they're in a, they have a union environment in their shop. Uh, they're somewhere in between thriving and surviving and thriving. And now um, I'm just wondering if you have particular insights in your experience on how companies have successfully moved up the continuum in a union environment and are there any additional factors or insights you can share? So yeah, I've, I've had some, some experience in the union environment both as a direct employee, as a production manager, and also as a management consultant. And um, you know, it really varies based on the relationship the union has with the with the management team. If there's very low trust, obviously speed is also going to be a lot slower to get things done. Um, but you know, in general, a lot of change comes through negotiation. So uh, for management to try to try gamification techniques, uh, usually this is going to re require a lot of involvement and ideas and input from union leadership or members of the union. Um, from what I've seen, it's even better to sort of engage people earlier and let them solve the problems that are holding the organization back. And leader serves as more facilitators than than directors, you know, facilitators and coaches than directors. Um, to some extent in the union, you're you're asking people to do things that are outside of the scope of their typical job. And sometimes that can be met with some degree of resistance. Um, but yeah, I think uh, the, the trust factor has to be strengthened early on to to even to even start moving in, in this direction um, as as trust can can lack of trust can quickly erode any any progress. So uh, that's my thought. Um, you know, if you have further questions on that, I'd be happy to maybe address that offline. Sure. Okay. Um, you know, if gamification is not part of your organization's culture right now. What have you seen has been a successful approach to get started when it isn't currently, you know, part of the company's culture or fabric? What approach works best in your experience? As as with anything you do, right, you want to make sure there's good alignment between what you're thinking about doing and the strategy and the overall vision for what the company is trying to accomplish, right? You want to be strategic in your actions. Once you're clear on where the company is trying to go, right? Are we trying to increase sales by 5X in the next year? And what are the implications on the manufacturing environment? Are we trying to grow rapidly? Where are we going to have a flood of new ideas and a flood of changes coming in? Are we just sustaining operations where we're, you know, not in a growth mode and, you know, we're trying to keep things, you know, stable, 
and uh, and predictable. You know, kind of depending on where the business is at and where it's trying to go, you would just do an assessment on, you know, what what type of behaviors are encouraged, right? So when you think about gamification, you're thinking about the the mechanisms that are in place currently that encourage the behaviors or the results that you're getting. So in every environment, you're you are game you are you do have some degrees of gamification, right? Even if it's a matter of if you don't do what I say, you're going to lose your job. That's fear of loss or avoidance that you're playing on to get that person to take action. That's also a type of gamification. Um, all the other self seven are at play as well. So like, like we saw with the radar chart, if you can assess where your organization's at, where it's weak and where it's strong, um, then you can maybe start to propose or, or stimulate or generate ideas to strengthen in the areas where uh, that will help your business go where where it needs to go. Excellent. Um, one listener asked uh, if you could quantify, you know, you spoke of how what a large percentage of the workforce is nearing retirement age, but they're asking, do you have an age range for employees that, you know, what would you consider ideal as perhaps a percentage in each age range to protect the company against this potential skill gap uh, in the future? Oh boy, uh, that is, I, I do not, I, I'll just be straightforward. I did not have an, a, an ideal percentage, but this is something I do think about, right? Um, in most companies, especially in leadership positions, and as you go up the, the ladder in leadership, um, you, you tend to get older and older for, for, for a lot of, I would say the general consensus, you tend to get older and older, right? Where the future of the company belongs to the younger people, right? If uh, if you're going to have a mass exodus, which which we're sort of seeing of uh, older talent and people leaving companies, um, the younger people are going to be left holding the bag, right? So, you know, I, I don't know how companies would do this, and I haven't seen great examples. I've seen companies making effort, but it makes sense to me to try to get younger people into leadership positions in much less time. Right. Maybe pick out some people who who have good leadership capacity and, you know, doing a job at a, you know, operator level is not the same as doing a good job at a leadership level. And you may be a terrible operator, but a fantastic leader. Right. Uh, it's not the same. It's a different skill set. It's a different mindset, different way of thinking and operating. Um, maybe find, you know, do, you know, put a little more groundwork in the finding and picking out those people who really have the right kind of leadership mentality and capability and bring them, accelerate them up into the organization so they can have a seat at the table and start influencing decisions that will set the next generation up for success. Um, young people, when they walk into an organization, um, a manufacturing organization, you know, the assumption is that, uh, hey, you got all these machines in here, you must be making a ton of money. I'm expecting to see some type of software that I can hold in my hand, that I can access on my computer from home, that can help me do my job better. And when they walk into a factory and, and, and there is no technology there, you know, uh, if you're a talented young person, right away, you're thinking you're, you're, you're challenged, you're questioning whether or not you're in the right place <laughs> right away. So I think that's part of, you know, part of the challenge we're seeing now. And, and, and although I don't have an ideal mix, you know, I, I think of, you know, fair distribution to represent the customer perhaps. Uh, but, you know, I certainly, I certainly advocate for getting younger people into leadership positions at a, at a much faster pace. 
Very good. Um, one listener has an interesting suggestion because so many people are hired out of technical schools, you know, a PLC course, an OEM maintenance course. And are there ways where perhaps technical schooling can be more effective in this regard? Absolutely. And, you know, I've heard things from people who are studying apprenticeships and they don't have a good opinion or, you know, perception of the way America approaches technical schools. Right. It's uh, it, it goes back to the whole thing of, you know, we try we try to channel our kids into the college track right away. And not everybody's not every not, that's not the right path for everybody, right? So what some of the some of the leading countries are doing in this space is they're creating programs that kids go into coming out of eighth grade that channel them into the technical career path, where you're going to be a high skilled uh, person for a you know industrial type career, manufacturing career. Um, the U.S. could do a way better job at this. There are states like Washington, Oregon, and uh, even Georgia, Ohio, Kentucky are are, are pushing to create create these type of curriculums, uh, but I think that's it's kind of slow coming, and I think it's, it's it's being done mostly in the private sector with some government grant support, uh, but it's you know it's a bit slow moving. You know, if if any of you have a lot of passion to work in this space, this is a much needed space and uh, could be you know quite fulfilling to 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 contribute your talent toward creating this type of pipeline. Great. All right, I think we have time for one more, so I'll kind of combine two questions here in the interest of time. Um, someone asked if you have uh, asked how we might motivate more young workers to get involved in the manufacturing field. And another listener mentioned that they're volunteering with an organization called Skills USA uh, that works with high school students and has competitions, you know, who are looking to get into the trades as, you know, perhaps one example. So can you share any examples you have of things that you've done or you seem to be effective for encouraging more young people to enter, you know, to get excited about being in the manufacturing space? Yeah. Um, wow. That's, that's, that's pretty great to see programs that are engaging people at a, at a younger age. I think that's critical. Um, in terms of, you know, motivating or creating the will to join manufacturing, you know, manufacturers in general are losing the gamification game, right? Young people, you know, I myself and, you know, other young people, including myself in the young crowd, I, I don't know if I should do that or not, but, uh, you know, we grew up in the digital age. We grew up with technology, consumer grade technology in our hands, right? Um, we grew up with video games as well. So when you think of gamification, you think about where people, young people spend their time and where they're naturally pulled to, you know, manufacturing companies are gonna have to figure out how to incorporate those types of things into, um, into their way of operating. And also to, to, to push the PR, uh, a PR, almost a, P, a public relations campaign to, to make manufacturing cool again, you know, make manufacturing great again. So uh, if, if, young, if kids are on TikTok, you know, manufacturers should be on TikTok as well, showing young kids how cool it is to come and work in a factory where you can, you, you know, you have a, a laboratory to experiment with technology and robots and machines and, you know, cutting edge software and that kind of stuff. 
um, that's, you know, those, those are the kind of things that, you know, would attract that next generation to come and work in manufacturing. Look at, you know, Tesla is a great example. If you want an example, uh, they have, you know, of course they have a, an incredible product, you know, they're, they're disrupting the, the industry. I would say if they've disrupted the industry by now, um, with, with battery technology for, for cars, uh, you know, and they have talent, talented people lined up to, to, to get an opportunity to interview. Uh, that's a, that's an ideal example of, you know, leveraging, you know, techniques to motivate people and pull in young people into to manufacturing. So I think there's a lot that can be done. Right now we have a culture of, you know, don't share information. Um, manufacturers have a, uh, for, for those of you who have bought houses before, I want you to think about something. For those of you who have bought houses or sold houses before, you, you're familiar with the concept of a buyer's market versus a seller's market, right? If there's a surplus of houses on the market, then it's a, a buyer's market. They have their choice. They can be more demanding. If there's a shortage of houses on the market, it's a seller's market. The seller can be more demanding. Many manufacturing companies, especially those that have been around for a while, have a, um, a buyer's market mentality, meaning they can basically they have their pick they can be more demanding on who they let in the door and give a job to right but the reality is that it's a seller's market when it comes to labor it's a seller's market there's not a lot of labor available for for, for all the companies across all industries to share so um you have to kind of change your mentality to become more of a more of a, uh, a seller's market and to try to get talent in the door and uh, it seems like we're still operating in a in a time when there was just a surplus of labor and not enough opportunities. So yeah, that that's a piece of it. Um, there's tons of other stuff. I'm, I'm certainly open to, to, to new ideas in that space too, because it's, it's definitely something I'm deeply interested in. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, um, Calvin. Uh, I see we're at the top of the hour and we are out of time. We'll be sure to share some um, additional information um, and if we didn't get to your question, we apologize, but we'll keep the conversation going and we'll make sure to get them answered. We'll share some information um, about Calvin's company and how to reach him in case you want to continue the dialogue as well, because clearly it's a topic that so many of us are, are uh, passionate about. So thanks again to uh, Calvin on behalf of uh, Fluke Excelix and the team here. Thank you so much for presenting today and thanks to all our listeners to taking time out of your busy day and contributing not just your attention but also many of your thoughts so we appreciate it there'll be as soon as we end the webinar there'll be a brief survey and please let us know how we did and what topics you know what's on your mind what topics we can bring you with uh, experts like Calvin and others that will really um, help you in your journey so on behalf of Fluke Excelix and Improver, thanks and have a great day. Thanks, Calvin. See you next time. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure.